0: If you're going to do anything, don't start with the solution. Start with the problem. You're saying, what are the opportunities? First, figure out what are the big problems. Bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. When do we celebrate the wins? When is it going to be fun? And like the, the core T is like, well, what fun? That's not like, that's just fake stuff. That's like, we, we don't care about that. We care about like doing interesting things that are hard. The winner is the one who sees the brutal reality as fast as possible.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Fintech Leaders coming to you from New York City. I'm your host Miguel Armasa. and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Ben Miller, CEO and co-founder of Fundrise, the largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager in the U.S., that has grown from an idea to a platform with over 2 million active users and over 3.3 billion in real estate, private equity, private credit and growth stage venture capital. We discuss how a product pivot cost Fundrise half their customers but set them up for future success, why Ben is not optimistic about many tech companies worth billions, and believes they will continue to struggle to turn a profit, how rapid growth impacts your culture, why the best innovation happens at the intersection of multiple specialties, the importance of staying true to your mission, and a lot more. Ben, welcome to FinTech Leaders. What's going on? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation, and, and Ben... I wanted to kind of start with a topic that is on a lot of entrepreneurs' minds, and and not just entrepreneurs, but also builders all across fintech and all across tech in general, and that is uh, profitability, uh, specifically turning around a company to go from you know very high burn to ideally you know break even or even profitable and. When we talked, I believe it was last week, you're saying that what gets in the way of achieving this turnaround are two things, culture and business model. And and you're not so optimistic on the entire market being able to to kind of get there. So I, I'd love to kind of for you to expand your thoughts specifically on, on this topic.
0: Yeah. I mean, it... I have a learning from my first startup a long time ago, which is that the winner is the one who sees the brutal reality as fast as possible. And, you know, this is now, I mean, I went to a startup from 1999 to 2001, so it dates me. And then 2001, obviously, tech bubble blew up. And I watched kind of like a full cycle from, I mean, I died was crazy. And then everything... Collapsed from 2001 to 2004, and so it's a funny psychological bias to not want to do the ugly, hard stuff, and that's basically innate, not a business problem. Just generally, like people find it negative or a downer. And then what happened to tech culture from basically 2005 to 2020? Two, so that's a long time, like a whole generation of people never, not only never having to do that, but actually being punished, being punished for being conservative, being punished for holding back, and it trained not just the founders but all the venture investors too. And I was talking to some venture investors about this, and they were saying that like the ones who were like kind of like tough and chisely negotiating tough terms they got washed out of the um tech industry and so the culture of tech broadly kind of rejects being tough it's like that's not what like people go to work for tech companies because they want like i of i think if you look at google as being like the extreme example right of just you don't have to fire people. Firing people is tough. That's not fun. Let's not do that. You know, let's give everybody lots of frills. And, and those are like trivial, but the, but the downstream consequences of like the tough trade-offs in everything, and, and there's a trade-off in everything, and, not, and consistently not making the tough choice, compounding over two decades, basically, I think has created a big problem for the tech industry, which, you know, we don't know, if basically, we're going to go back to zero interest rates. And you know, we don't know if the world will return to kind of pre-2009, you know, economics. But if it does, then it's a big problem for the
1: culture and business models that came out of that culture. Because you're a big participant of the community today, and you spend time talking to investors, to other founders, what do you think has defined those that reacted quickly to the change and, and have been able to, to, have, to have had some success in changing things around at their companies? I think that this, it's a spectrum. There are
0: companies that have made progress to break even, but break even is not the goal. People say, our goal is to get break even. Well, that's not actually like a goal, that's like a requirement. And so, you know, like Google, an example, like a wildly profitable business, or AWS, wildly profitable. So like a great business has massive net profit margins. And the way it is able to do that is, you know, obviously all this stuff, every MBA knows like competitive advantages of, and if I look at software, like the public software companies, forget the private ones, very few are profitable. And you look at their cost structure, they talk about gross margin. Like, oh, our gross margin is 85% you know, or whatever, very high gross margin. So, but their net margin is always negative 25%. And there's like this interesting thing in the entire financial ecosystem of tech, which is that everybody's excited about gross margins, and nobody talks about net margins or not many people. And so there's a big difference, big, big, big difference. You know, I don't know if those companies can get to meaningful net margins. I just, I, and so we talk about like sort of why and how, but that's like, and those are public companies. Those are companies worth like five, 10, $20 billion. They arguably can't get profitable, right? Snowflake arguably the best public software company in the world and massive net negative margins. And if you look at their income statement or balance sheet, like his income statement, I'm not a public analyst on this, but it's like their sales and marketing is like a third, a third of their cost structure. And that's true across like most of the tech industry. And that basically means that like they're, so race to the bottom. You're spending so much for each customer
1: that the customers aren't profitable. And when we talked about fundraising this context, you said something interesting. You said that you are starting from a luckier place to get there. What do you mean by luckier? Well, the two points
0: are culture and business model. So let's do business model first. Like so fintech like, I'm not sure that most B2C fintech companies can be profitable. Like Schwab, which is the $5 trillion company, you know, or $5 trillion of assets, you know, basically struggles, struggles with having any margins. QQQ, which is the owned by Vesco, has never made its owners money. And so you can go down the list of like banking and, you know, stock trading Robinhood and, and you, and you come out the other side saying like, well, this is not a very high margin business, it's a very low margin business. And the cost of software, maintaining software is actually much more than I think people understood it to be, both to maintain it in a really traditional sense, and also just to keep up with keep up with change and competition. So, so here's a, 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 compare us to the public market. So there are the seven largest alternative asset managers being Blackstone, KKR, Apollo, Starwood, have twice the market cap of the seven largest public normal asset managers like Schwab or Fidelity. So they have, I don't know, 10 times less assets and twice the market valuation because the alternatives market is so much more
1: economic. And I guess that that is temporary as of today. Like Going forward, do you see margin compression happening in the alternative markets as well well so you're starting from a
0: place of like you know massive margin difference between alternatives and publics i think all of them are going to see margin compression that's just the nature of of a competitive environment competitive market but i think that the alternatives like have a long run you know decades before they end up anywhere close to the kind of slim margins you see in public markets and so Here's another one like the neo banks. The neo banks are not banks. They're software layers on top of another bank. And can those software layers actually be profitable? Like, I, I'm skeptical because if you, and it's funny things, if you look at the way they get to the profitability, they get to the profitability by actually charging way more than if the consumer was on JP Morgan. Like, because what the regulations is interesting, like kind of nuance inside the new banking industry, but the regulations ban banks bigger than I think $10 billion in assets from charging interchange fees more than 15 bips or something. So really, really low, something like that. And so the new banks actually charge like 10 X those fees because they will have the, their assets across multiple banks. So no banks like more than 10 billion. So they, so they actually are charging, it's like ironic that you're seeing with a lot of like fintech companies, actually they're more expensive than traditional. Like they have more, the consumer is paying more than the traditional players. And that's because the cost structure of software is actually much
1: higher than people appreciate. So Ben, I want to switch gears a little bit. Although it's very related to where we're talking about. and that's the early days of fundrise. And you know, over the years consistently, just research and evidence shows that the culture you build at the very beginning stays with the company throughout its lifetime. You know, sometimes you can change it. I mean we're looking at Elon Musk and Twitter now X, maybe as a as a fringe case, but but it's very hard. To change our culture, tell, tell us about those early days, going from zero to twenty people, and you know the approach that you took to setting the foundation for Fundraise. I, and I'm I'm guessing you know you you had lessons from your initial startup from ninety nine to one, which you applied to Fundraise a decade later.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've had a decent amount of experience going into this, and so. I tell you some of the things I did right and then some things I did wrong because it definitely, I think it's partly true that the culture is like sticky, but I think that just to j- jump to the end and come back to like, I think 2021, a lot of companies got carried away in terms of this explosive growth and that happened to us. And so like, let me just do the the negative before I do the positive. So like we went from hundred people to 300 people in 24 months and then we went to remote and the remote and the tripling of people that really undermined or or diluted our culture, and we're still working on that basically. So I think that remote and really fast rates of expansion, like if you you can have a certain amount of hiring and maintain culture, but if you are hundred people and you go to a thousand people, you know ninety percent of people don't have that culture, and so it's so I think that like having. Things true with the culture persists, but but it's actually like the growth fights cultural cultural norms. So going to the beginning though, <laughs> so like we've always been different, and that difference has been a gift and a punishment. But we aren't in San Francisco. We didn't chase like venture money. We we were just like sort of outside the system in a lot of ways, and that has been I think really good for building a different culture and it was it was bad for a while because you sort of like the in hot copycats would be in san francisco and they'd you know get all the hot you know press and and be in the ecosystem and then like what's happened is they've all gone they've all gone out of business and so like (laughs) the permanence of it, it is what matters but so like the cultural examples of things we did and this ended up we have like you know written values and i onboard people with them And one of them we we call like collective ditch digging and in the the core team who's still at fundrise the core founding team cto you know coo me blah 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 we were like we'll do the worst work like we used to compete for who would be the one to buy the toilet paper who'd be the one to clean the bathroom like and that's it's a double-edged sword actually is that with every value that's real, there come negatives with the positives, and so I can talk about what the negatives are. But basically, we have a culture of like doing, like being attracted to, like the worst, ugliest, hardest stuff. Like that's like the the top people don't get to do the fun stuff. Yeah, curious about the negatives. The twofold negative is it is that people find it relentless. When do we celebrate the wins? When is it going to be fun? And like the, the core T is like, well, what fun? Well, that's not like, that's just fake stuff. That's f- like, we, we don't care about that. We care about like doing interesting things that are hard. And then the other thing is that like there's so much hype in tech. Hype is super valuable. Like you basically go out and see all this stuff. Mostly it's not true. Right? They have sort of like, we're changing the world. We have this stuff. And then you sort of build into that hype and you execute into it. And the hype kind of helps pull it forward. And like, I will go out and start hyping stuff. Like, I to go out and come hyping stuff. Like my I come back in CTO would just be like, what are you doing? That's bull. Like, that's not just shaking. That's like, you know, glorifying, that's glorifying, that's ego. And so like, we we were like bad at that stuff.
1: And as you build, I think it's inevitable every day you're running into unexpected things. Yeah, in, in fact I think you've said that nothing is expected, right? So how do you plan, right, as a, as a founder someone who knows that what's around the corner is probably not what you expect and what you're planning for? You know, how do you course correct? How do you chart your path as a company? Yeah, I mean
0: one of the big challenges is this. Things I'm saying for example, profitability are not what matter in the beginning. So, like the, the like the way you do things, the mode changes at different phases of the company's growth. And so, like what you need to be doing from you know zero people to whatever number fifty is like nothing. Like what we need to be doing at three hundred people, and those shifts are really confusing when they happen because you basically. I have to unlearn things or let go of assumptions. You know, there's that famous quote by Mark Twain, like, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that ain't true. And so what happens is like, you think there are certain ways you do things that or certain things that don't work anymore. Like we did digital marketing in the beginning, and it didn't work. But digital marketing doesn't work. And then we figured out some things in the product and then digital marketing started working, but we didn't know that we should go back and start spending money on digital marketing. So there's just like these shifts. So like one of the analogy I have, and this is a true story about aviation, this is a great m- metaphor. So the airplane industry finally built airplanes that would go faster than speed of sound, you know, Mach 1. And every time they did, they crossed a sound barrier and the airplane would crash and the pilot would die. And they're like they just could, couldn't understand it. Like, why the hell every time we hit sound barrier does the airplane crack or they have to eject out? Right. And so, remember the name of the pilot. Basically, he crosses the sound barrier. The airplane just starts going straight down into the earth, like just boom, straight down. And he's like trying to pull out, pull out, pull out, and it's just going straight down, straight down, straight down. For oh, whatever reason, he decides to flip it and push into it. So he flips and pushes into the dive and he comes out of it. And what happened, they figured out is that Bernoulli's principle flips in the way the kind of like the way that the airflow has changed, flipped. And so you literally had to flip the like the way you fly because you're going so
1: fast. And that is like definitely something that happens in tech. Yeah, yeah I think that's a really good analogy. Tell us about like... Maybe one example where this happened to you to at Fundrise, and then how did you guys react? Oh man,
0: <laughs> a big change we made to the business model over the years. We've made we've made three big business model changes. In the beginning, we did this. We basically pioneered this idea of what became called real estate crowdfunding. So we. Went to the SEC in 2011 and said we want to like raise money for a real estate deal on the internet. And we spent a year and a half working with the SEC. And when we launched it, we were the first to do it in the world or in the country. And then we did like another one, another one. We did 44 of those deals, 44 separately capitalized. Like you could invest in like you know an apartment building in San Francisco or you know a Starbucks in Phoenix, right? And then we, I, I believe very strongly that model. It's not a good model. And we broke from that model and we launched funds as opposed to deals. Now it's 2015 when we, at the end of 15 is when we switched. So we did that for, and there's, there's a lot of lessons in this, but like we lost half our customers when we did that. And it changed how we could do fundraising because now you could have fundraising always on in a way and you could change how you market it and it just unlocked all these basically digital marketing opportunities that just didn't really work in the, the way before. And that, I mean, it, well, here, <laughs> more specifically, if you go really, really the big difference now that I think about it is that this goes to another principle that's critical is that you could not democratize investing in a deal because the the regulatory cost of getting a deal signed off on by the SEC was way too high. 44 separate, you know, regulatory sign-offs. Like that doesn't work. We did three. And then we basically went to an accredited only model. And that this is around 2014, where at that moment there were 150 copycats. 150 people came out saying they're and and it would be like, hey, it's to kill me because an article would come out being this the first real estate crowdfunding deal ever. And I'm like, but what do you mean? There's that headline's been written now f- like seven times by seven other startups but three years ago is like is when the first one came out and they, they're still able to get that headline and like I would see those, you know, founders like join our website, go throughout our website and then start the copycat a year later. Like every single copycat, I have their user ID when they signed up for fundrise like a year before. <laughs> so I was like, what is going on here? Anyway, so it used to make me crazy. But like when we left that model they all most of them stayed in that model even now. <laughs> when we left that model, it was there was a lot of debate about that. There were two reasons why we left it. One is I thought it was brittle from an economic point of view, and if there's an economic shock, a fund's way more resilient than a than a single deal, which is what you're seeing today, but years later, seven, eight years after we made that decision. But the other one is that we could democratize investing by doing this fund structure model rather than doing a deal model and only having accredited investors. And so the reason, I mean, we did this primarily because that was what we were all about. Like that was our mission. That's why we like the, the principle, I call it operating principle, is we knew what we wanted. And that knowing what you want is like one of the most essential ingredients to success. And Ben, like, to
1: manage all this cuz unless i have it wrong you have over 2 million active users and you know just billions of, of dollars in aum that you're managing what kind of innovations did you guys have to build to build you know to to make sure that you had a a seamless first of all onboarding experience but also for for the client but also for you to to just manage all this complexity, because because many of your customers are gonna be, you know, there's always inevitably the long tail, and there's gonna be large, but you wanna serve all of them. Did you find yourself kind of building some innovations to manage this whole process? Yeah, the good thing about that kind of problem to solve is that it's like you can
0: attack it in bytes, in increments. There's two kinds of problems that are to solve. Some that are, are best solved incrementally, some of their are best solved non-incrementally or non-linearly or binary, binary solutions. And those are the the second categories are the hardest. Like, you know, you, you couldn't invest in real estate and internet, you could. You democratize it, right? The, then like, how do you manage the long tail? That actually goes more to the cost structure questions of like, okay, you watch a user flow. I mean, like, it's one of those things that people take for granted, but like the, be to be able to buy a piece of a real estate deal on the internet, we had to basically invent that. It didn't exist. Like just like Amazon invented like how you would buy something, like and now people it's invisible because just taken for granted. So we've had to create a model where like what the flow would be that someone basically bought this thing that didn't exist before we created it. So so there's like there's you know, product flows and then there's all this stuff in the back end of like how how do you manage what we we get 10,000 customer outreach or tickets every month. And so getting good at routinizing, systemizing things. So there's like the, another way to sort of look at this is there's like two different modes of work. There's finding product market fit and scaling it. And they're just the actual people and way you do things and like there's so many things that they're there's opposite. That's a release principle right there. Like when you're scaling, it's all about process. And when you're looking for product market fit, process is the enemy. And some people who are really good at process, they're super organized. They hate when things are disorganized, it makes them really nervous, anxious. They fight the product market fit people and the product market fit people oh they're so disorganized and they are like jumping around and they they they're, they're, they're re- overreacting to market signals and so like those two groups are basically like often it's really hard for organizations to shift to the scaling and then they often lose the people they lose that the, the zero
1: to one people in that process and i guess this is this also relates to Something we've talked about in the past is how the zero to one people, the ones looking for product market fit, they're innovating, but this innovation is happening in between specialties. I'd love for you to expand a little bit of that concept. Well, so I'm going to
0: go narrow that. I'll go really broad, see if it holds up. So, like narrowly, we had to combine three to four different specialties to create our product, right? So clearly we have to have technology expertise who you know how to back-end engineers, building databases and front-end engineers and UX and all that stuff that's sort of like, you know, just broadly speaking, technology. Then you have people who are regulatory people who don't understand the SEC, understand basically like how do you basically create something that doesn't, didn't exist before, a, a framework. And then you need people who know about real estate, finance, and and what's a good real estate deal? And those three things are like nothing to do with each other, right? Those people, like if you go to a real estate organization, there's nobody who knows anything about technology and they don't know anything about SEC regulations, like so. And same with technology people don't know anything about the SEC. And SEC doesn't know anything about technology. <laughs> so trying to build those things together requires like these people, I call them polymaths, but there's people who need to sit in the middle and like really learn as much arguably everything that could be learned about the areas and create the synthesis. And those people who are like obsessed with getting to ground, I call it like I, the bedrock principle or the YY principle, you got to get the first principles on the regulations. Like one of the things that I'll say to people, they come back about regulatory thing, I'll say, well, did you read the rules? Did you read the source material? Like I want to see the sort, like show me 12B1, like show me that thing. I want to read it on understand it. And what a common mistake in that area, this is very common, is to listen to the experts. Lawyers, consultants, accountants. I'm like, yeah, I'll listen to them, but that's not enough. I want to see the source material and I want you to become the expert. I want to become the expert. Like they are educating you. You're not relying on them because you can't rely on them because ultimately you are the one who's at risk. So there's like principles of how you basically get good at um, combining different disciplines. And that's like a a synthesis capability. And then my sort of super macro point is that the problem with like our education system for the last, call it more than 100 years, is that it trains you to specialize. And that is actually how we achieve so many technological gains. We are very special, specialization economics, call it specialization. And the problem with that is we see, we're seeing diminishing returns to specialization and I think a lot of the innovation now sits between the specializations, between the specialists. And it's like right now, like a great one, there's like people working on AI and biology. And those are two different specialties and it's a ton of opportunity there. And those are just very different worlds. And they're combining them and and there's like a a, a shared learning. And there are people who are specialists who aren't interested in other areas. There's not interested. So you people who are specialists who are interested.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of my conversation with David Haber from Andreessen Horowitz, who he's excited about the intersection of fintech and healthcare, right? But the people who are actually, who understand both are not many. So Ben, let's talk a little bit about real estate, just not, not just for real estate, but the whole world has changed with much higher interest rates, but it especially affects real estate. You know, since, since most people are buying with mortgages fundraise is very active uh, if i if I'm not wrong you're you're investing about a billion you're deploying about a billion a year right and in, in real estate what has changed in the market you know with higher interest rates over the last i don't know twelve to eighteen months yeah, the real estate industry is in a transition
0: and It's like the brewery release principle thing, the flipping, like the rules are changing and those rules like are, are so fundamental. I mean, it's like interest rates are the gravity of real estate, like one of the four forces. And so currently happening in the real estate industry is denial, which is one of the stages of grief. And so they're hoping that they come back down, assuming they will and doing everything they can to basically kick the can and, and or extend and pretend and that's you know happening not just in real estate happening in, in any industry that's financed I mean you, even tech, right like a lot of companies raised to crazy valuations in 2021 100 200 300 times revenue and they're stuck because only a few of them have grown into that and many have not and they're stuck not wanting to raise new round. And that's basically like a huge problem for them. So it's, so it's very similar, actually. One of the things sitting across tech and real estate and credit finance is I get to see more. And so in some ways, like this was like obvious it's going to happen. Like you couldn't have zero interest rates forever. But they were zero for so long that it forced everybody, banks, real estate people, into a position of leaning into that. And just like any tech company who overexpanded in 2021, that leaning into it left them way too far over their skis. And so like the people who will basically like crash and not land that, you know, jump will be the ones who lean too far in. And in real estate, that's taking too much leverage. We have, you know, 50% leverage on average and typical real estate sponsor might have 80%, 70, 80% or more. And that basically means that they're going to crash. And so it's just a question of like, when and how there's, it's like inevitable. And so like for us, it's like, okay, first you play defense, first you make sure your house is in order, you know, you can land your plane and then you shift to opportunity. i like, okay, like there's going to be a lot of opportunity in real estate. It's already here, but it's going to get, it's going to magnify I think we're headed for a crash. And today I'm like a lone lone person on this one. But to me, it's more of like a fundamental principle, which is like
1: another philosophy I have. Is there a particular pocket in real estate where you think we're going to have bigger opportunities? Opportunities. I mean, you start with a problem.
0: This is another great thing I learned from somebody If you're going to start a business, if you're going to do anything, don't start with the solution, start with a problem. You're saying, what are the opportunities? First, figure out what are the big problems. Bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. That's why crypto is like, hasn't taken off. It's a solution without a problem. And so, okay, so what are the problems? I mean, the problems are twofold in real estate. One is, you know, work from home caused a technological change in behavior, which has impacted office and downtown cities. And the second is too much leverage in the system. And so, you know, where those two meet, you're absolutely like <laughs> high leverage, this urban real estate deal in office is like wiped out. And so, and then you you have to match that with like where you think the growth is going to be, right? So there's the problem and you have to say, okay, but do I think that downtown San Francisco is going to have long-term growth or Chicago? And so- You have to know what matters. And it's so funny how many people actually don't know what matters. They get lost in the details. That's a very common problem or or like
1: pattern that I see that I constantly try to help with. Before we wrap up, what's next for a fundraiser? I mean, it's been about a a dozen years. You've built a company into You know, a pretty large operation, you're active in multiple asset classes, but it sounds to me like you're just getting started. At least that's how you, you still see plenty of opportunity. So what's next down the road? We are, and I think the world is in a transition. We're in
0: paradigm shift. We were in an old paradigm, 2008, 2022, and we're in this shift and people want to get to the next paradigm but like the transition is still underway and we don't know what it's gonna be. The company is on a micro level and on a macro level. It's our shift to multi-asset class from real estate to now venture investing and to credit to where three asset classes. It's a big change to where investors aren't happy about it. And I tell them, no, no, it seems like it's a distraction but it's singular and singular for a bunch of reasons, but most fundamentally is technology. And AI like or generative AI has basically unlocked the opportunity to change every sector so so radically. And if anybody in real estate doesn't recognize now that technology is the primary driver of returns in real estate, just to manifest that a little bit, e-commerce destroyed retail and built industrial. And that's been a 20-year trillion dollar economic change. Work from home is going to do the exact same thing to office and to residential. And so for us as a company that's 150 software engineers and 150 financial people, like we have our opportunity to to be at the nexus of that. And I think that will deliver and drive great returns for our investors, but it's like a it's orthogonal to how they think you should be executing, which is like in a way, like that's really good because Doing the obvious thing is usually not going to have great outcomes, but it's painful because people don't understand it in the beginning. they don't, they don't like it and it seems like unintuitive and, and so you, you get a lot of cr- critique.
1: Well Ben, thanks for educating all of us. I think, I think it's been a really, really fascinating conversation. Obviously you going to be following very closely what happens you know, going forward with the progress of Fundrise. And, you know, thanks for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Ben, CEO of Fundrise. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, And leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off, till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.